Imagine receiving a letter through the post from the Scottish Parliament. After you check and double check that the letter is in fact for you, you discover on inspection that you have in fact been invited to address the Scottish Parliament on the subject of the Christian faith. For various reasons, Scotland's policymakers want to get a perspective on what Christians believe. And knowing that you are a Christian, they have invited you to come and essentially share your testimony with them. Moreover, just to pile on the pressure, there's a PS with the letter. And the PS states, almost as a throwaway comment, that the Queen will also be in town that day. And then, in point of fact, the Queen will be attending the Parliament and she will be observing and listening to your testimony. Now, you thought sharing your testimony in Charlotte Chapel was hard. And just imagine sharing your personal faith with such an austere and indeed royal body. Well, in the Bible, one of God's servants, the Apostle Paul, actually had a similar invitation. He actually faced a similar situation to that. Because Paul, a follower and messenger of Jesus, was once invited to address the high and mighty, the politicians and the royalty of his day. And we still actually have the record of what Paul said to them. And we find it in Acts chapter 25. So we're going to study this this morning, just for a few minutes, before the baptisms. And there are Bibles in the pews. If you don't have a Bible, you can just take one and open it up to Acts 25 on page 1,123. As in this chapter, Paul is witnessing to kings and governors. Last week, Rodney preached part one, as uh, Paul preached to a governor, Festus. And now we come to part two, as Paul mainly speaks to a king, King Agrippa. And yet we don't get the impression that Paul is intimidated. See for yourself. Acts 25, verse 23. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice, that's the king and his sister, came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking of officers and the leading men of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Paul was a prisoner at this point. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man, the whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore, I have brought him before all of you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it is unreasonable to send on a prisoner without specifying the charges against him. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. So, here is Paul's invitation. 
So Paul motioned with his hand and began his defense. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defense against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. And then Paul talks about his background in Judaism and his previous persecution of Christians. And then in verse 12, he records, On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, O king, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen of me and what I will show you. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. First, to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and to the Gentiles also. I preached that they should repent and turn to God, and to prove their repentance by their deeds. That is why the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But I have had God's help to this very day, and so I stand here and testify the small and great alike. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen. That the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. Paul replied, what I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice, because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice, and those sitting with them, they left the room, and while talking with one another, they said, this man has not done anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Amen. Now, it's been tremendous this morning, hasn't it? To hear the testimonies from our four uh, baptismal candidates, to hear four people publicly witnessing to their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no doubt that it is 
a very bold thing to do in 2008 Scotland to stand up before a room of people and to publicly and personally witness to their trust in the Lord Jesus. And yet this dovetails very nicely with the passage this morning. Because I believe the message of this section that we have just read, the essential point particularly for Christians today, is that we, like Paul, should be bold witnesses for Jesus. That no matter who the audience, that no matter how intimidating the crowd may seem, our love for Jesus should be such, and our concern for our hearers should be such, that nothing will prevent us from witnessing boldly to Christ. This is what the Apostle Paul did. Before a king, Agrippa, before a governor, Festus, before a number of military generals in Caesarea, and indeed all the leading men of that city. Meaning that even although Paul was at this point a prisoner, even although uh, he was outranked, outnumbered, and outflanked, he was nevertheless not overawed in this situation. He was a bold witness for Christ. And if you are a Christian this morning, the, the Apostle Paul is therefore an example for you and for me. He is therefore a role model for us about the boldness of our witness. If this morning, on the other hand, you are not a Christian, then I believe you are invited today to listen carefully to Paul's testimony, to consider what he is saying about himself and indeed about the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I think as we examine what he says, we can helpfully separate it out into two strands. First of all, Paul's witness begins with him sharing his testimony. Sharing his personal testimony to Jesus. You remember the situation here. The Apostle Paul has been in custody for two long years. Uh, he's been in chains on trumped-up charges. Indeed, he's been accused rather ludicrously of being anti-Jewish. And at this point, the Apostle Paul has been handed over uh, to the Romans... And he is appearing before the highest Roman authority to date, the king, uh, King Agrippa. And you notice as Paul begins to defend himself against the charges brought against him, he does so by sharing his testimony. You know, the Apostle Paul just sought in his life to bring in his testimony wherever and whenever he could. Here he uses it as a defense against the charges. And we find indeed this testimony three times throughout Acts. And it is important for us, I believe this morning, if we are believers, to recognize the importance of our testimony. That while it is not the gospel, while it is not the same as the good news about Jesus, it nonetheless supplements the good news about Jesus, and it shows people the impact of the gospel in our lives. Back in the 1950s, when the glass skyscrapers were first introduced, maybe you don't know this, but many office workers were actually terrified of working in them. And the story goes that in one office, the staff refused to work. They were about 30 floors up, 
And while they knew there was a glass window uh, abridging their office and the, the drop, they didn't believe that the glass was a secure barrier. And so the manager of the building was called and, and he uh, explained to them about the design of the frame and the thickness of the glass and how it could hold so much stress. But they weren't convinced at his uh, explanation. So the manager brought up an engineer who really knew what he was talking about. And the engineer shared the same gospel truths uh, with them about the strength of the glass and its power to save them if they fell against it. And yet still they were not truly convinced. Well, finally, the engineer had a bright idea. He told everyone to stand against the inside wall and he took a run at the window and he threw his whole weight against it and bounced off. From that point forward, they were convinced of the facts that he had shared with them. For they were not mere academic facts. He was willing to throw his life onto the facts. And you see, in many ways, that really is what our personal testimony is. The gospel facts must be communicated. We must tell people about the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he is our eternal security barrier. And yet at the same time, we must show that in our lives, and we must tell people how, we have thrown ourselves on the mercy of God in Christ. And this is what the Apostle Paul does here. Now, you notice as we look at this testimony that it breaks up into three nice little parts. Often when we're telling people uh, in preparation for their testimony, we say, why don't you speak about life before you were a Christian, then how you became a Christian, and then life since you've become a Christian. Well, that's what Paul does here. We've just taken it straight from his sequence. First of all, he begins with life before he was a Christian. And he says, he recalls, that he was a strict Pharisee. Verses 4 to 8. Now, Agrippa would have known, because he was actually half Jewish, that the Pharisees were a particularly religious and zealous group of Jews. Put in our terms, Agrippa would have known that the Apostle Paul was brought up in a religious home, as some of our candidates said that they were. He would know that Paul prayed at certain times, that he went uh, to regular worship, that he kept his nose clean as much as he could. And yet we see here also that there is something missing in Paul's life. Because the problem for Paul was, amongst other things, that he opposed the Lord Jesus Christ. And that therefore he opposed God himself, as all of us indeed do. That despite all of his exterior religiosity, despite his good grounding in Judaism, Paul, nonetheless, has opposed the name of Jesus, verse 9. In fact, he was a Christian persecutor. In verse 10, he admits to putting many saints in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. In other words, we might say that the Apostle Paul was rather like most of us before we become Christians. He was a contradiction. Not to say that everything was wrong about his past history. There was some of it which was commendable and good. And yet there was something profoundly wrong and profoundly missing in his attitude to Christ. And so Paul needs what we all need. He needs to become a Christian. And this happens, we find in verses 12 to 18, as Paul encounters the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. 
The famous story of Paul going up to this city with the aim of persecuting some of the Christians here, uh, there, and he stopped in his tracks by a blinding light, the light of Jesus' glory. And in Paul's case, conversion happens instantly. And soon thereafter, his conversion moves on to his commission from Jesus in verses 16 to 18. Isn't this beautiful? The persecutor of Christ becomes the proclaimer of Christ. Paul is appointed as a servant and as a witness, verse 17. He sent me, says Paul, to open eyes and to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. Paul is saved to serve, as every Christian is saved to serve. And then we observe, finally here, that Paul wraps up his testimony with life since he has become a Christian. And what he he speaks of is two characteristics. First of all, the characteristic of obedience. King Agrippa, verse 19. I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven. Jesus commanded me to speak out. I've spoken out. I've spoken up. I've spoken round and about the place to Jews and to Gentiles and in cities all over the known world. And this is one of the sure fruits of genuine conversion in our lives that we have, as we heard again in the testimonies, a renewed desire to obey God and to serve Him. And yet, of course, we must be warned that our obedience so often leads to suffering and hardship and persecution. Look at verse 21. That, that, that is why, says Paul, the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. Why were they trying to kill Paul? Well, because Paul was testifying about Jesus. And why was Paul testifying about Jesus? Because Jesus had commanded him to. There is a direct correlation between our obedience and often our suffering. Disobedient Christians often escape persecution. Silent Christians are rarely suffering Christians. But Paul is not silent. His testimony is too important. And he gives it in full pre-conversion, conversion, and post-conversion. It is a great testimony, isn't it? Not that you should evaluate this, these things, but it's a wonderful story of the grace of Jesus and the power of God in his life. Not just out of some textbook, but in Paul's life. Can I ask you this morning a personal question? You know, today we have heard five testimonies already. We've heard four testimonies from our candidates, and we've also heard the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you have a testimony? Do you have a personal testimony that you could share, that you could lift up and show to everyone here at Charlotte Chapel this morning? Could you step up into the, this pulpit and share, if you had the courage, if you, to share your story? That is important because if you have a story to share, then you are a Christian. If you don't have a story to share, then you are not a Christian. You may know an awful lot of facts about Jesus. There are many liberal Bible scholars who know a lot about Jesus. But they're not Christians because they don't know Jesus personally. 
To know Jesus is to have a personal story which says, here's what I was before I was a Christian, here's how I met Jesus, and here's how things have been since then. Do you have a testimony like that? If you don't have a testimony like that, then I pray for you this morning that the testimony might begin to take shape today. That this might be your day to encounter Jesus and to begin to follow Him. And if you have a testimony today, if you are a Christian, are you sharing your testimony? Those that have a testimony should testify. Here's Paul with this King Agrippa. He's never met him before. He's in an unusual situation in a courtroom. And within five minutes, he shared his entire story of how he came to faith. I look at my own life and I think of some of the relationships I have with non-Christians. And, you know, it's more like five months or in some cases five years before I get round to that. Or in some cases, the only thing people know about us is that we go to church. And they don't know that it's not just a case of us going to church. It's a case of us loving the Lord Jesus, living for the Lord Jesus, and trusting in Him for eternal security. Do they know that we've thrown our lives on His mercy? If we don't tell people our testimony, even if we present the gospel, it may seem rather academic. So this is the first strand of Paul's witness, sharing his testimony. More briefly, let's turn to a second strand this morning, proclaiming the gospel. Because Paul doesn't just share his personal story, as interesting as it is. Paul interweaves. Notice this. He interweaves, he threads through the tapestry of his testimony, the objective facts of the gospel. If you are new to Christianity... If you're just beginning to seek and search and wonder what it's all about, there is nothing more important for you to grasp today than the gospel. And what the gospel, or the good news, that's simply what it means, what the good news is. This morning, I'm going to briefly try and explain from one of the verses in this passage what the gospel is. And I'll try and be simple because Paul is simple. Sadly, often we Christians, we make things more complicated than the Bible is, than Paul is, than than Jesus is. I'm reminded of the story of, it's a made-up story, of course. Uh, Jesus, you know, he one day asked a group of Bible college students, who do you say that I am? After a brief discussion, one of them offered, you are the omega point, the cosmological uh, genesis of experience, the realization of transitional being conceptualizing the affectatious existence of the primordial derivative, the apotheosis of the world. To which Jesus replied, pardon? (laughs) Right? It's not that complicated. The good news about Jesus is simple. It's profound, but it's simple. And in its content, it is the good news about the Christ. It's a message about a person, Jesus, Who is the Christ? Verse 23 is the verse we're going to take this from. It is the Christ who would suffer. The Christ is the first aspect of the gospel. Now, when we say that Jesus is the Christ, or when we talk about Jesus Christ, recognize that it's not that Jesus is the first name and then that Christ is the surname. 
No, Christ is a title. The Christ is a title that comes from the Old Testament, and it means God's anointed, or God's chosen one, God's promised one. And if you read the Old Testament, large part of the Bible, the first uh, two-thirds of it, and you're wondering, what is this all about? Well, it is mainly about the promise of the Christ. It's all about the promise of a Messiah who will come to deal with the sin of the world. Everything in the Old Testament foreshadows and predicts, foretells and points towards the coming of this Christ. And then the New Testament opens, and as the curtain opens on Mark's Gospel, for example, we read this statement, the beginning of the Gospel about Jesus Christ. So the Gospel is firstly that Jesus is the Christ. God's promised Savior. Verse 22, as the prophets and Moses, that's the whole of the Old Testament, predicted. And fulfilling the Old Testament, the Christ did something of infinite importance for you and for the world. Notice it in verse 23, suffering for our sin. The gospel is that the Christ would suffer. This refers to the fact that Jesus, who is the Christ, was crucified. That while the Christ was innocent, he was betrayed by men and he was condemned by God and that he died on a cross in my stead and for my sins. Moreover, the good news is, however, that this Christ is not still dead and in the grave, but rising from death, you notice the verse there, he is the first to rise from the dead, he is alive today. And so it follows on from that, the final piece of the gospel, which is that today he is bringing light to the world, verse 23. That he would proclaim his light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And this proclaiming happened through Jesus' first disciples. After he was raised from the dead, he spent 40 days with them. He taught them the gospel thoroughly. And then they went out, and we've been reading of this in Acts And they shared the light of the gospel to a dark world. This is the gospel. It's identical to what Paul says over in 1 Corinthians 15.1. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on as of first importance. What is the gospel, Paul? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he then appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. This is the good news for you today. That while you and I have acted treacherously against our Creator, that while we have shunned his existence, that while we have certainly pushed him away in terms of his rule over our lives, God has acted decisively in the person of Christ Jesus. By Jesus dying and rising for us. And so that even today, the good news is being proclaimed from this pulpit. Now our response to this news, and there needs to be a response, is also laid out in this passage. I'll cover this briefly. It should be one, first of all, of faith. Verse 18, to put our faith in Jesus. That's a response to the good news. To trust in Jesus and to trust in the news about Jesus. 
The gospel is not a call to try. It's not a call for us to try harder, to be good, and to somehow reach the bar. The call of the gospel is to recognize that only Jesus met the bar and that he died in all his perfection for us on the cross. And then along with this, there is, secondly, repentance. So we trust in Jesus, but we also repent, which means that we turn from our sin to God. We leave the old way of life behind, which Jesus died for. We leave it buried in the tomb, as the baptism will symbolize. And then once we are Christians, our response should be one of good deeds. Verse 20, second half. I preach that they should repent and turn to God and to prove their repentance by their deeds. The gospel may be for bad people, but it does transform us into good people who are increasingly holy. I want to finish this sermon by simply asking you very directly what your response will be to the gospel, to the good news, and also to the testimonies that have supplemented that gospel today. At the conclusion of this story, there's a pretty sad finish to things. I guess the the one positive is that on a legal level, there's a good response to Paul in that he is, is acquitted. There is no charges that they can bring against him. That's how the passage concludes. But on a spiritual level, the sad thing is that both the governor and the king reject the gospel. Two negative responses. First of all, Festus questions Paul's sanity. He interrupts Paul. He won't even let him finish his testimony. And he says, you're out of your mind. You've been reading too many books of theology and you've just lost it. It's what many people think about the Christian message, isn't it? That it's crazy. And then there's Agrippa. And he doesn't fear much better. Because when Paul presses him and and he says to him, well, you can't think I'm so crazy because you believe in the prophets, don't you? Agrippa, don't you recognize that Jesus is the one who has come in fulfillment of all of the Old Testament? And he pushes him on it. And Agrippa deems Paul too hasty. He says, too fast, Paul, slow down. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? That's what many people do. They just push it off till tomorrow. They don't explicitly say no to the gospel. They just say it's too fast, too quick. Paul's reply shows his heart for the lost. He says, I don't care whether it's a short time or a long time. I pray to God that not just you, because the gospel isn't just for kings and governors, it's for all people, but everyone who is listening to me today, I pray that you will be saved and that you will become what I am. And then with a little touch of irony, he says, except for the chains, obviously. Maybe you've come this morning and the testimonies have impacted you and the gospel has challenged you. There's a ring of truth about the gospel. Maybe part of you is saying it's too quick, it's too fast. Well, if you believe the gospel is true, then you should respond to it today. You don't need extra time when you're already convinced. You need to commit to the truth. Because you see, at the bottom line is, Jesus is either the Savior or he's not. His gospel is either true or it's not. He's either worth following today 
or he's not. Don't put it off this morning. If you do believe that he is the Savior and that his gospel is true, come to him today and say, Father in heaven, forgive my sins. Forgive me not because of anything I have done, but solely because of what Jesus has done for me. Thank you for the death of Jesus and for his resurrection on my behalf. I believe the gospel. May my testimony begin today. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the Apostle Paul was not some holy man who was just prevaricating about some theological truths. He was a sinful man who had been miraculously saved and then appointed to serve you and speak for you and your son. Father, thank you that everyone here this morning who is a, who is a Christian is so by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Give us a heartfelt gladness and joy in that today. And give us a compulsion to testify to that as we go into the rest of this week. Father, for any here this morning that don't know your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, I pray that you will work by your Holy Spirit and that you will make them what we are who are Christians by your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.